0: Welcome to La Vesa Chronicles. On today's program we focus on education. we bring you an interview by our very own Vilma V. on Latinas in higher education. we also bring you an interview by Luis Marina, who speaks to a lot about the film Dolores that premieres just a couple of weeks, and about her work closely in educator and then in the labor movement. Lastly, we focus on the San Francisco Latino Film Festival, which kicks off September 15th. All this and much more. Stay tuned.
1: Listening to *The Lost Chronicles*, and I have live in the studio with me, Dr. Lily Espinoza. And she's the author of a new book called Not Getting Stuck: Success Days of Being Latina and Transferring from a California Community College. Hi, Lily. Hi. So this seems like a very interesting book, and it's really nicely focused on Latina mm-hmm. and their issues. So tell me a little bit about why you wrote Not Getting Stuck." Sure. So, uh, the reason why I love this book came to be was because I was actually
0: between work, and I worked 15 years in higher education. I was suddenly out of work, and I was suddenly not able to help students on a day-to-day basis. And I was thinking, what can I do? What can I produce? What is something that I can offer out into the community that can make a difference? And I really wanted to write a book. It was a lifelong goal to write a book. And I thought about my dissertation, and I remembered the stories that I had from the dissertation, and I thought those stories need to be a book. And I just sat down, started reading through my notes, everything just was making me cry, making me laugh, and I was like, these stories are so important. And I just put it all together, and um, it just really to me because I almost felt like I was a vessel for this message to say, Latinos, you can be successful. Latinos, you know, don't give up on your dreams, and anyone can be a success, even
1: at a community college. You can reach your goals. Yeah, I neglected to say that Dr. Espinosa has 15 years' experience in higher education, from Harvard, beginning at the community college level. So you yourself went to was it Diablo Valley mm-hmm. College? So tell us about your experience. And you didn't go directly to a four-year high school. Sure. I'm
0: okay. No, I did not go to for to a four-year. I actually started at Diablo Valley College in Pleasant Hill. And the reason why I went there was because I actually did horrible in my education. I was almost like a high school dropout. I barely graduated. I had to go to night school. I had to get extra credit. And I was one of those students who just did not engage in their education. But when I went to community college, it was sort of like a brand new beginning. It was like all of a sudden I actually cared about my subject matters. I cared about my professors. I cared about learning. And it was like I just went to the and loved <laughs> education. And I was like... Man, if I hadn't gone to community college, I I don't know what I would have ended up doing. And it just opened up a whole new world to me, and I went from community college to UC Berkeley, um, but it wasn't easy. It, at the community college, I was stuck in a dead-end relationship, I was broke, I had no money. When it came time to apply to colleges, I had no money for the application fee. Mm. And I remember one day, I walked by the transfer center at um, Debra Valley College, and there was a representative from UC Cruz. And he was at the table, and he said, hey, why don't you apply to the UCs? And I said, I don't have the money. It cost $55 to apply to the UCs. I didn't have $55, but I had rent money. And he said, well, how many, family, you know, how many members are in your family? I said, there's five kids. And he said, how much money do your parents to make? And I said, I don't know, 20000 And he's like, you qualify for this UC application fee labor. I hadn't even heard what that was. Right. I never even heard that term. He gave me this little certificate. And it was like, almost like one of those golden tickets from, you know, telling me to talk about it. I was like, what is this? He's like, it's a fee waiver. You can apply to four UC free your And I was just like, ah, so excited. I was waiting in the air. And I was like, when's the deadline? And it was like three weeks from then. And it was just like, I need to do this. This is an opportunity. And I just I just ran home, I did everything I needed to do, I applied to the UC's, and my goal was to go to UC Berkeley, but I just didn't have that money, and that would have stopped me from applying, and it made me think how important it was to get that due waiver. Um, I applied out of UC's, I got into everywhere I accepted, I've accepted everywhere, and I just couldn't believe the power of that moment, and that made me think, I need to work in community college, I need to help other people, I need to get the word out, you can change your life at the community
1: college. Yeah, that's so interesting because then you weren't very really successful on high school, but community college you were, and then you got that waiver and the sky was the limit.
0: That was it. It was like there was no nice stopping me at that point. After that, I was like UC Berkeley, and I was living on the East Coast. I'm like, I'm going to try to an Ivy league school, you know? And I'm like, I'm going to go to Columbia. I got in. It was beautiful, and then I was like, I'm going to get my doctor applied, I got in, I completed my doctor, and it was sort of like, it all goes back to that moment, single moment, and then when I started doing research on educational research, um, when I studied cancer, a lot of stories are the same, it was like these single moments, these like chance happenings, these like weird flukes are the reason why people were successful, and it's like, cancer shouldn't be an accident. It shouldn't just take uh, a good luck to transfer, it should be systematic, it should be structural, it should be policy-oriented, it should be legislated, it should be written into the way that we practice um, what we do with our students, what we do in um,
1: admissions, so we can support more because we know students can do it. Yeah, that statistic that 80% of students who begin a community college career expect to transfer to a four-year institution, but after six years, only about 14% of them actually do that. Right. It's a really disheartening statistic. When I told people I was a transfer student
0: at Columbia University, they looked at me like I was a crazy person. <laughs> like, how huh? You're a transfer student in all the Ivy League institutions? It just didn't compute. People were so confused. And the reason I chose to go to Columbia University was because they have the CCRC, the Community College Resource Center. And I was thinking, I want to research community colleges. I'm just obsessed with community colleges. And what can we do to improve them? And they were so down on community colleges. You know, there's this article about China and they talk about how community college students are steered away from higher education. And I even call the community colleges kind of like a borderland, you know, if so we talk about borders between spaces and this community type system is like a borderland and i think of the students as crossing the border you know they make it to the other side but not everybody makes it and why is that and it's because there's so much uh, confusion about the process and how do people make it and, and what information do they need and what we need is to create those symbols for our students you have to show them signs how do you get through We so even talk about things that go from community college to community college and we call it a swirl the transfer swirl we need to stop making it this swirl and we need to show people exit routes and show them the next step
1: i think i did a little bit of that swirl myself because i dropped out of high school so i got that like when i was 15 16 and i went to a community college in southern California, southwestern mm-hmm. community college. I think it's the 7 most fun, and then I get a little bit of thrill. I went to Mesa College, I went to San Diego City College, I went a couple of places, and I finally transferred to UC Santa Barbara. So I totally relate to this book called "Not Getting Stuck: Success Stories of Being Latina and Transferring from a California Community College." You highlight nine different stories Uh of some women who have made this journey, Latina. Uh So tell us a few of the stories that you'd like us to know about. So, well, these nine stories
0: are just the most exciting stories that I could tell. And what I did was, with my dissertation, I interviewed over 20 different individuals and uh, out of those 20 i picked these nine because i think these ones are really demonstrative to hear of what community colleges can do to help
2: students um one
0: of the girls uh, she is a photo student who is honored all through the way when she graduated high school, she felt so much pressure because she felt like a token minority that she couldn't go to college for some high school. She decided to enlist in the military mm-hmm. rather than go to college because of that pressure and mm-hmm. the intensity of always taking an education. So she goes to the military for four years. She serves our country in Iraq. I mean, she sees everything you can possibly do. She comes back, she's 24, and she thinks she needs to catch up with everybody else. So she goes to college, she's going full-time, she's using her GI Bill. She finds a counselor who guides her, and at first she wants to go to the university right down the street. And then her counselor says, well, why do you want to go there? And she's like, well, it's just easy. And the counselor like, you can transfer wherever you want. Mm. Don't limit yourself. And that's when the student's thinking, well, why would I limit myself? I do have this opportunity. So she applies to a dream school and she gets in and she transfers and now she's received her master's degree from the same institution and now she's working in the Veterans Resource Center happening at a military after they leave the military and it's just a beautiful story and then there's two girls who are undocumented immigrants and they have to handle the issues of discrimination about immigration issues about lack of financial aid but they don't know how to access information they don't know what the steps are and they talk about their success. This one girl who wanted to transfer, she actually wanted to go to medical school. And it took her five years to transfer because she would take classes, drop out, take classes, drop out, take. And that's the story you hear all the time. So many of us have been Oh, yeah. And yeah, <laughs> one of, every one of us has that story. You know, they're very relatable stories, and she's successful as well. And then there's a student who's from uh, a very well off family. She's very well to do. She's total middle class, um, stereotypical story. And she got into a UC State from high school, but her mother got sick. You know, she wanted her to be close, But they said, go to school, go to college. But she, not I, the student said, no, I need to stay close to home. It's family. You know, family is so important. And family comes up in these stories all the time. You know, something my mom said, something their dad said. And uh, that student comes to community college, and she doesn't want to talk to anybody. She's like, "I just say that go to school and leave. But then she realizes if I get to know students, and I'm part of student clubs, student activities, working on campus, these people can help me as well. And she ends up transferring to her dream school, and it's just very inspirational stories. And then there's a couple other students who want to go into teaching, transferring down to the local school. Other students, this one girl, her family has issues with a family member was convicted of drug-related charges and they're told to move from one city to the next city and then all the family is living under one roof and they're working so much trying to pay rent and pay the mortgage that she doesn't know she could be successful. Mm. And then she finds a mentor at the community card, one of the faculty team members, so you can write, you're a writer, and you should dance it." And she does, and it's beautiful story.
1: And that's the voice of Dr. Lily Espinoza, and you're listening to La Ressa Chronicles. So let's talk a little bit about the, you kind of distilled down to these five success, five or six mm-hmm. success tips. Tell us a little bit about those tips. Well, the five success tips
0: are useful for anyone going to college, and they both really are for anybody going to college. Um, it does say specifically for Latinos because you can relate so well to these stories, and it does mention community colleges. But really, this is one of those books that if, if nobody in your family went to college, if you're the first person in your family to go to college, this book will give you kind of that nitty gritty inside look because it's coming from the students themselves. In my dissertation, what you need to do when you do a dissertation is you need to distill down to patterns and trends and what is something that you have observed. And so I was able to observe these five trends from all the stories. Number one, the students had to have a critical conversation with their family. And the reason why they had to have that critical conversation is because a lot of times the family don't know how to involve themselves in the students' lives. The parents are sort of like, you know, if you know ask somebody at the school, talk to somebody over there. The students had to have a conversation with their mom again and let them know what was going on with their life. Like, I'm going to college and my mom needs cancer. And basically spell it out for your parents. One of the girls, she was working because she had to pay rent, and she was also going to college. And she finally told her dad, listen, Dad, I really want to go to college. This is really important to me. And he's like, well, what's wrong? And she's like, I'm working so much to pay rent. It's getting in the way of going to school. And the dad says to her, wouldn't stop working. Mm. And it
1: didn't even occur to her. that <laughs> she, she could stop working. So you tell her, get the family on board. Get the family Stand on. on board. Your family will have your back. And if they don't then maybe you need to talk to
0: somebody at the college as like a counselor and find out how you can maneuver that. Okay, so step number two, leveraging social capital. What that means, basically, you find friends. Mm-hmm. have to people at the college. I always tell students, do you know another student who goes to this college? Most students don't. They mm-hmm. go to school and leave. They go to school and leave. It's a commuter mentality. You have to have a social network and positive peers. If you're hanging out with the same people from high school when you go to college, Usually that's not the best route. You want to find new friends, positive friends, smart friends, people who you can study with, that sort of thing. So reaching out. Yeah, you can keep the old ones and make new ones. That's right. what college is about, right? Exactly. Yeah, so expand your social circle. The so next thing is identifying life changes at the college. So meeting people who will change your life. When I tell my story about meeting that guy from UC Santa occasion <laughs> and he gave me that feeling. The yeah. magic waver. It was like he changed my life. And I used to think, man, that guy changed my life. But I'm like, wait a minute, he didn't take my classes. He didn't get the grade. <laughs> he didn't get out the application and do
1: it. Hey, stop. <laughs> so it was like he helped me. But I didn't do it alone. Yeah, you You almost like pulled up a blind on a window, and then you like opened it and stepped in. I did the
0: rest of the work, but we have to ask for help. And, you know, Sonia Sikomar, from the Supreme Court, she said that. She said, not everybody can just pull themselves up of a bootstrap, right? We have to ask for help, it's okay to ask for help. And we are so quick to not ask for help and to just sort of like get through it and, and not look up and see who can help us. Uh, we have to learn to do that and that's something that these girls definitely did. Another thing was navigating an academic landmarks and milestones, knowing what is the path to success. One of the paths to success is taking English and math. You wouldn't think that that is something you have to teach students, but you definitely do. You have to say you have to take an English class, uh, English placement class, math placement class. Because if you don't do those things, if you're a 4 student and you've been there for four years, you're not going to transfer anywhere. Mm-hmm. You have to take English and Math. Those are the gatekeeper classes. Yeah,
2: the core classes.
0: Right. So we need to know the mile markers. Other mile markers is taking thirty units. After the first year, if you've taken through 15 minutes each semester, that's a mile marker, you're on the way to success, you will get there. Then finding friends, joining a club, you know, having a mentor, all of those things are markers that will lead to your success. The other thing is having a new sense of self and Mm. a new new sense of their academic potential. So many students have that negative self talk in the head, they're telling themselves, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? Oh, I a one. No. women. Right. Women, we, are, we say that all the time to ourselves, and we need to change that in a dialogue. We have to create a new sense of self. When I look at transfer students, they say, well, if I'm lucky, like I hope I can transfer. I said, no. Change your language. You're going to transfer. Mm. There's no question. You will transfer. And now the question is, where will you go? They're changing their sense of potential, knowing that anything is possible. They have to own that themselves. And then getting over the fear and the stigma and the self doubt. So many students are scared. And if they just tell another person they're scared, that helps alleviate some of that fear. And it's okay to be scared. So many students start with a community college and they feel hopeless. That was something I really recognized. They start to feel like, oh, I'm at the last chance. This is last good effort. This is my last hope. And they feel hopeless, like almost depressed. Embarrassed to be there, and there's so much stigma. There's a statistic that over 60% of students who graduate from a college started by a California Community College. Wow, well, over 60%. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the UC system, it's over 30% of students graduate from the UC system started by a community college. So this hopelessness needs to be
1: immediately addressed. We need to talk about it. community colleges are a launching pad. they're not a dead end. Yes, that is a beautiful sentiment because I totally agree. I often tell people, all lives are lying. If you weren't a star in high school and you're 19, twenty, you know, who you are at 19 doesn't mean you have to do that at 25. You can be high school dropout at 17. I'm a PhD candidate at 30.
0: That's right. That's right. And I see that happening all the time. I've seen mothers come back to school with their daughters. I have seen people who were out of school for 20 years come back to college and now they transfer I have seen students who didn't even realize they had a learning disability, realize that they have a the learning disability, get treated or understand their accommodations, understand what right are with through their rights are through the American Disabilities Act, that they can get accommodations and then be successful. I can remember this one time when I was graduating from college, working with my dad I was graduating and it was a special uh, Latino graduation ceremony, and one of the girls I had helped to test it for us, and she was like she was getting her bachelor's degree and she was a mother who was like in her forties and it was just sort of like we just happened to see each other and I was just like, she's <laughs> graduating <laughs> I mean, she didn't even think she could go to community college and she was graduating with her bachelor's degree and it's just, there's so many success stories, and so many students are the first in the family to go to college. Oftentimes, even if you've gone to college, most people don't have a parent who's gone to a community college and transferred. And so this book provides a way of hope, or at least some you know, role model, somebody who can tell you that you can do it, because these be girls did.
1: Yeah, I think it's not only good for students, but maybe also for parents and Mm -hmm. aunties realize okay maybe you didn't do it through high school but look community college is a viable path right i I love that that. so as we move to that what do you think is one of the biggest obstacles is it financing is it navigating the system what Mm -hmm. do you think are some of the big obstacles that prevent someone from making that leap from the community college Mm -hmm. to higher? well Unfortunately, one of the systematic problems is that community colleges are really
0: easy to fail at. It's mm. really easy to take a class, drop it, take a class, drop it. We don't really stop you from that. <laughs> <laughs> they used to be the same years ago, it so said students have a right to fail. And if you let them take a class, you know they're not going to pass it, they have a right to take it. And and that does give them a lot of opportunity. But I also want to say that students have a right to be supported. And they have a right to understand their services, such as tutoring, um, you know, to support, counselors, you know, other uh, these people who will help them with their educational planning, they have a right to get access to that. And a lot of students don't even know you can ask for that kind of help. I think we need to do a better job of giving them an orientation, letting them know what's available, uh, letting them know the services that are out there. Another struggle I think is the students who just don't understand the application process. They don't know what the deadlines are. They don't mm-hmm. know that you have to have a major. Uh, mm-hmm. That can be a big obstacle because sometimes you've been at the school for two years and you're really a transfer, and they're like, oh, well, you didn't take classes for a major. So you need to stay here about a few years. And that happens very often, very often. students like, oh, what about a leave. I've been here so long. What else can I possibly take? Early change their major multiple times. And again, about the swirl seems to from college to college, it's hard for them to put all their ideas together and, and decide what they want to do. But I think in the state of California, we've got it pretty the path is pretty solid between community college to the university. I would like to see better articulation between community colleges and universities across the United States. I'm kind of like a pioneer of community college success. And I think that in California, we've done a really well good job with Master plan, and now we're trying to talk about free community colleges. Mm. So I think there's going to be more and more opportunities. But that doesn't support the transfer function. It's like, transfer is only own little entity, and I don't think there's enough articulation happening across the United States as much as it could be. And also community colleges are also doing too technical training, and also doing basic skills training for people learning English and you know learning math skills. So there's so many burdens of community colleges. I, I feel the student can easily get lost on that, and they just need to have that direction and support along the way.
1: Well, it sounds like this book is something that will help with that. Mm-hmm. It's called not getting stuck. Success stories of being Latina and transitioning from a California community college by Dr. Lily Espinoza, who has had a lot of experience in community college and helping students cross that frontera. So tell us if somebody wants to reach you or how can they get, get the book mm-hmm. or. You want to talk to you about transphobia? Okay. I am happy to talk to anybody about transphobia, and I
0: often have random conversations, even like getting talked about You know, I I always <laughs> always talking about it, and my my ears always perk up. And I'm online, you know, answering discussion boards. I go on Reddit, I read discussion boards there about the entire college. I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Lily College Mythbusters. The book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and as an electronic download. I'm available. i already already booked a college speaking engagement in Florida, so if you want me to come to your college I'm more than happy to do that. You can reach me through the Facebook page. There's a Facebook page called Not Getting Stuck and you could reach me directly that way. Or you can message me on my YouTube channel, Lily College Mythbusters.
1: Great. Well thank you so much, Doctor Spinoza, for taking the time on that Chronicles, for letting us know about how we can become a four year college success. Thank you so much and good luck for others being us. Thank you.
3: You're listening to KBFA 94.1 of them, which is host Luis Medina. And I had the great pleasure of having in front of me a hero for just to condense everything that I feel about these ladies. I'm talking about the one and only, the Royal and director, producer, writer, Peter Brock. And they're here at the 60th Championship Francisco National Film Festival because of the premiere of the documentary on the North West's last call Dolores, and how are you two today? I'm
1: um, fine, thank you. Celebrating my birthday. And Peter, how are you doing?
3: We're doing great. We had a great night last night at the
1: premiere, oh, and I'm
3: as Dolores said,
4: he's 85
3: Well Dolores, I want to start with a question to you. You gave up a possible career in teaching and found your calling us an organizer. What moved
2: you to make that decision and change the direction towards helping the farm workers? Well, as a teacher, I could see uh, what the farm workers' children's condition was in my classrooms, and also uh, doing public engagement with going day to door, registering voters. Uh, coming across the homes of farm workers, as you just said, we had brick floors and of of or furniture, and knowing how hard the uh, they worked out there in those fields and, yeah, but they were living in such terrible poverty. And I had learned how to do organizing work by uh, Mr. Fred Ross He He's the one that uh, recruited my staff into organizing. And uh, I thought that I could make more of a difference by organizing their parents and teaching their children. Fred Ross and Fred Ross are
3: two people that influence do much work. Did you film the letters capture and
2: communicate those connections effectively and honestly in your opinion? I think it did, especially because a lot of people don't know who Ted Ross was. was. They don't know that his uh, impact uh, in terms of uh, the Chicano Movement, I'd like to call Ted Ross the godfather of the Chicano Movement, uh, because of his uh, ability to go out there. And it was not, not only specifically myself, but in Los Angeles, uh, he is the one that organized to get the first Latino elected to the City Council, Eduardo Reba, when they came the first uh, Latino to go to the U.S. Congress, and they became a leader in uh, legislation on the elderly and uh, talked at the uh, uh, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. They had a whole campus named after Eduardo because he did such great work in terms of uh, helping uh, elderly people with, with their health issues
3: you and Seth had a very really strong connection where we love each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it about Seth uh, that You said to yourself, this is somebody that I have to work with, we could do great things together. How did
4: that all come about?
2: Well, it wasn't quite an uh, instance the film shows that uh, Seth said was not really a responsive <laughs> I was trying to, you know, get his organizing time point street because he was such a great organizer and I just wanted to learn some of his uh, tactics that he used, some of his methods of organizing. and he was not really paying any attention to me at all. And it wasn't until I was at one of our meetings that I gave a report of the work that we were doing in Stockton, that we had a chapter there so that the that, I guess he thought I was just talking to. <laughs> so, uh, and the, I think the, the one thing that we had in common uh, was our uh, passion about farm workers, because in the community service organization, uh, we've dealt with a lot of different issues, but uh, the, the, we did all have a lot of farm workers in the organization, but we also had chapters in the cities, like San Jose and the San Angeles, Oakland, San Francisco. So we have some old chapters and some urban chapters, but uh, because I lived and worked in an agricultural community in Wisconsin, California, and Susan hadn't been a farm worker, so this, we had, that was the one thing that we had in common was that we had to do something about farm workers. And initially, we were going to do a pilot program within the the community service organization, but at the convention, they voted us it, down, and so and we had kind of thought that that might happen. So we were all leaving, making plans how we, we were going to form and form this union. So the movement first opened to you for a minute. And Peter, how did the idea of making a film on the life of the Lord's work come
3: about? How did it start for you?
5: I was going to say, you know, it was my idea, and I started with Oxford. Actually, in fact, uh, it was Dr. Carlos Santana who called me four years ago and said, "We have to tell a story about the voice right now." So it was really his inspiration and motivation that kind of. Everything.
3: Why was it important for you to set the record straight regarding Dolores' history and accomplishments?
5: I don't think it was my intention or Carlos' intention to set set a record state. I think I think as we started researching, um, I, you know, I I thought I was well informed and knew about the Dolores' work, but as I started researching I realized I didn't really know much at all, yeah.
4: <laughs>
5: and and I didn't know. At the beginning, that Dolores was there at the very beginning and was the co-founder. I thought, I thought it was Caesar's idea, and he built it, and then later enrolled other people. I didn't know that she was there from that. So I was, I was doing it as I was going, but as as we got deep into the research, and we discovered that there was a deliberate attempt to kind of not include her in, in the narrative. Then then the questions come up well well why is that? Mm-hmm. And so as you start to explore those those questions the the matter slowly emerged.
3: It's not illuminated on a lot of things. I didn't know that you started United Farm Workers with Teachers Fathers, you know? And a lot of these thoughts come to light and it's beautifully put together. That's one thing I, I enjoy about the movies, the montages, the photographs, the various interviews that you've done throughout the years. And I wanted to ask you, Dolores, you went through a lot of struggles and sacrifices to achieve the victories that you helped win for the Farm Workers cause and for other causes that you've been involved in. Is
2: there anything you gave up that you regret during all of that? Uh, looking back, not really. I think the one thing that I wish I, I could have done was have my demanding life for my children uh, because I had a very wonderful uh, middle-class life. Uh, you know, I I had music lessons, I had dancing lessons. I had a wonderful, wonderful life growing up as a, as a, as a youth, and my children were not given those opportunities, unfortunately. I uh, have many of them do passes. The good thing is that they uh, provide. they came out very strong. My oldest son is a funny, funny Texas doctor, my son is a is, a, is an attorney, and I have a daughter who's a teacher, an ER nurse, you know, and family. so on and So on. So they all came out really, really good. But they they did, I guess, have experiences that many children will never be able to have in their lifetime, in terms of the you know the excitement of being in the movement and. And marches and protests. In fact, some of them even went to jail with me. <laughs> so uh, it, uh, it, you know, these are cannot be duplicated. So I guess it's kind of a trade-off. Uh, and when you start that, but uh, I guess that would be the joke. Your support of Kennedy put
3: you in the national political spotlight mm-hmm. and opened the door for you in in that arena, in the national mm-hmm. spotlight. How was that beneficial in your fight for civil rights and the causes that you believe in?
2: Well, at at that point in time, uh, supporting Robert Kennedy, uh, it was uh, a little controversial because uh, he came into the two movement race, you know, ahead of other people uh, that were ahead of him, uh, like, um uh, I think he was running, at that time. And uh, it in, in, uh, was controversial because he, he kind of was time of the Vietnam War. Many people were uh, – that was supposed to be a, a, a kind of a traitor if you didn't support the Vietnam War. Uh, but that was very, very you know, surprising. And we had known him before uh, before that, because he had been a supporter of the farmers Union, mm-hmm. he had actually had fundraisers for – we had a, a a clinic that we had to form in Delano because there, there was no medical services for the pharmacist in that town. And he helped us raise money to have a a, a, a volunteer clinic there. But so we we had known some of to be uh, you know before he went for office, and we were very, very proud to support him. The firm made a point.
3: Of your support
2: uh, of the women's movement, and mm-hmm. uh, have you always considered yourself a feminist? I, I think I I did My, my mother was a feminist. She was a businesswoman. She was very ahead of her time. In our family, um, my brothers had to make their own beds, and they had to help washing with washing the dishes and uh, doing the housework. My mother was two jobs, and so we were the kids were responsible to keep a, to keep the house clean. And my so my brothers and I were I, I call her the opportunity mother, <laughs> and uh, she was always uh, you know pushing me. I was kind of a shy child actually, and she was always pushing me out to don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid to engage. And you know she, she was always uh, pushing me forward. Uh, sometimes even when I, when I felt reluctant I mean, to take a, a leadership position and to speak in public or whatever, so she was a great influence on me. But but uh, uh, part of the this movement, of course. Was the abortion issue was a very important part topic from this movement, mm-hmm. and I was really reluctant uh, to be able to understand that, uh, you know, being a Catholic, uh, having eleven children, and that was kind of anathema awesome for I me. And I really had to understand that, that this meant, you know, what what uh, women's right like to abortion meant, uh, and of course, then you have to think about science, you know, that really that you can kind of deal with this, understanding that uh, a fetus is not life until it's actually born. And so, but it it, it took me a, a it was difficult, and I understand that that's very difficult for many people still in today's world uh, to to deal with that issue. But I do believe that the right wing, you know, they focus on issues of abortion, gay uh, rights, uh, uh, this is what they do, even now denying climate change, you know, because they want to put people's focus on these cultural issues, and then it, the real issues that we have in our society, the economic issues, that we have the 10 percent that have 90 percent of the wealth of, of the United States of America, and that our kids are not getting a quality education, and that we do not have national health care, like every industrialized nation in the world has except us here, because it is just so powerful. The fact that we do not own our national resources, you know, we don't even think about that. We just take it for granted that all these oil companies are the ones that own our oil or <laughs> our electricity and our telephone systems and our transportation systems. And many wonder why uh, we have so much poverty uh, because we have corporations that really own the wealth of of, of the people, the natural resources, and so. I think that uh, this is something that people, like I said, they, they focus on and the, these other issues. When we really we talk, we're talking about economic issues and a profit-driven corporations, and we have so many people that are homeless and hungry and living in poverty, and that we do not have any quality our uh, equity-driven education
3: system. In your opinion, what are the most important issues that we should be paying attention to at this time in the age of Trump? <laughs> what should we be paying attention to? What should we be out there doing something
2: about? Well, one of them is called education because uh, we have a huge ignorance in our society and this is why it's easy for them to attack immigrants, to attack Mexicans, uh, because that uh, people do not no, we're not talking our school books that the contributions of doing people of color. We don't have enough school books that the Congress in the United and the Congress in the White House are built by African slaves. The African slaves and uh the immigrants that came here from Mexico, from Asia. Uh, they wasn't really built the infrastructure of this country, you know, the railroads, the buildings, the agriculture. Everything was built by immigrants. And uh so we have this racism that they can get away with and, uh, because people are ignorant. And, and I think that's – and when we talk about the economic issues, people are ignorant about the vote issues. Also because you know, they're not reported in the local corporate media. Uh, you have to get a case of like Democracy Now! with any Goodman and Rachel and, uh, and and it's to get the information about what's really happening right now and the major issues even on things like climate change. So we uh, have to evade the ignorance and uh, but once people get the knowledge, the grounds are in if they, they to have to act on that knowledge. It's not enough just to know. You have to do something to make that change. And you've got to, people have got to become active, they've got to become involved, and you have got to be able to vote and elect progressive candidates. Uh, because unless we do elect progressive candidates at every level, starting at the school board level, and the city council, mm-hmm. and the legislature, and of course the Congress, uh, then uh, we're not going to. How people are making their decisions and how our tax dollars are being spent. But our tax dollars are not going to the wealthy, instead, of been going to schools and health services and, and infrastructure that we need. Now, Peter,
3: going back to you and regarding the film, the making of the film, Boris, how did you start putting the elements of all the film together? When we first started doing research,
5: you know, philosophy research in labor history, But what, but what soon happened was. Uh, you know, Deloitte and Peter set off organizing farm workers, but turning them into obstacles that have to do with racial inequality. And then, and then as things evolve, concerning issues that farmers workers are confronting, like pesticide spraying, they still have to be ad- addressing environmental justice questions. And then if Deloitte goes to New York, and to meet people like Gloria Steinem, she starts mm-hmm. grappling with abortion and, and feminism and so, for me it, it, her life really uh, exemplifies uh, someone' who lives at the intersection of all these different struggles, and they're all kind of linked together. So that became a very interesting idea and and kind of schematic um, core that we we explored in the film. and then I, I would say the the big one that started the filmmakers and me in particular was when. Delores said that early on, uh, her passion uh, had always been for dance, and she mm-hmm. was a professional dancer. She played flamenco, ballet, um, jazz, and then and then Carlos mm-hmm. Carlos was saying, you know, how, how the whole story got started with Carlos and Delores were having conversations conversation about jazz, and so I found out like her number one artist was Charlie Parker, and mm-hmm. and and so that became a really fascinating thing to. to to see this icon, this folk that I grew up
4: knowing is, oh, like
5: that <laughs> 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 You know? uh We wanted to incorporate those elements into the story because, you know, the music we listen to, that that, that becomes a part of our life.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And, then, uh, and then this idea that Dolores is a dancer of justice, just, it was just such a a lot up okay, there that couldn't be ignored, so we incorporated that theme and idea and music as a cohesive thread uh, to that song.
3: I really enjoyed that about the film, also. There was the study of music, the culture, the dance, mm-hmm. uh, and the way that the transitions, especially the transitions of time periods where mm-hmm. you would incorporate some music and like uh, the montage at the beginning with the flamenco dance uh, Yeah, the flamenco mm-hmm. dance and
4: Yes, the whole, it, it was a very a tasteful use of music and um, actually
2: the documentary kind of, kind of raw skin. You know, it was kind of, it's like a love. Laugh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I and mean, I think that the film has so much uh, content in it, that it's very serious content, you know, and including uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, Yes. and uh, so I think that the music uh, really, uh, it uh it, it helps a lot because we didn't it doesn't make the film very however Although the the issues that are being talked about is you know the issues that are so relevant in today's world, and it's uh, it's it it was I think a uh, it made the perspective uplifting I think to have to to the music you know. I I I think I think this is a a song about a Latina a
5: Chicana mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, as, as a people, as a, as a community, mm. we love music, we love familia. And so the the, the film, we, we felt like the film had to have the elements of familia, it had to have humor. Because even when things are tough, we laugh. Yeah.
3: Even yeah.
5: when things are, we struggle, we dance.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And mm-hmm. so, and I said the voice, that's who she is, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we felt like the film had to have these, people had to laugh, they had to cry, they had to, you know, they wanted to get up and dance. Mm-hmm. So we thought in bringing that, it would have, it would reflect the culture that it was depicting.
2: Yeah, well, I think that poor people, especially Muslim people, live hard lives, you know. And uh, you know, a lot of the music is uh, you know helps them live those lives, and, you know, trying to keep them going. And it it a big spiritual quality in people's lives. Yeah, yeah we can get political, we can also get funky.
5: So, beloved, I was going to ask
3: you what
2: are you hoping to accomplish with your foundation well we hope to uh, do more organizing this is what we do we actually raise money uh, we hire our people and we send them into a community and every organizer has to meet with 200 people in their homes and we talk about their issues and uh, we get them to commit that they want to work on the issues and then we volunteer uh, to do whatever needs to be done for the goals that they want to they want to get a street that needs to be paid to do a stop right and uh, they need a swimming pool, and uh, they need money for sort the of local school districts, uh, big water issues, whatever it may be. Then uh, we make an action plan, uh, people volunteer to do the work, and uh, then they make these incredible, incredible changes in, in the community. Taxes, taxes sometimes, for so, uh, police, child protection, and the places of the youth. Uh, we've had uh, several bond issues that have been passed to build a gymnasium at the local middle school, and they're getting politically and then one of them decide to go for office. And uh and there was the wheel we have one woman I looked at the it because she asked was yes, on Shepherd student Board, a school board and a water board. And when she got elected to the water board, I uh, she decided the person that they had just hired to be the water manager turned out that he had been hired from government from another district and so she got rid of him really quickly and then she started to she ran to at all the books and found out that there was a dollars missing. And she called the grand jury to come in to find out where that money went. Okay, and so I, you know, then since she's on the school board, they were the one the, the principal wanted to get uh, the superintendent wanted to get rid of the buckets program so for four like of the kids because it was too much capable. Well, mm-hmm. she got rid of that superintendent. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in the time, I visit, the woman, a newly woman, she's very limited English, very, very intelligent, but everything has been translated into Spanish, and uh, there, we have now. Have uh, taken control of several of those boards by, uh, you know, having them run for office, and as they do, a C-3, so they do their own political work, but they know how to pass the and they how to and they know how to get out the work, and how to get them elected. So, like, now we have a C four, which means that we can actually endorse candidates, also. So we wait to raise mm-hmm. money there in seven different communities, uh, both in Kern County and Tulare uh, County, mm-hmm. in the central valley of California, So it was very much like. I said, when we talk about the Central Valley, it's not like Berkeley or San Francisco. It's more like uh, Alabama and Mississippi uh, because of the power, the oil business, the oil, the control, all of the power. In fact, where we live in Kern County, our congressman, one of our congressmen, is McCarthy, who's the majority leader of the Republican Congress right now. Mm. And, my and my son Emilio worked at ran for Office when we, over, over mess, the wasn't the next, the next office, candidate was in the hands of a Republican board. I'd rather do it. So my son, last time, the last time, he didn't quite make it, but you he's know, to do another one. So hopefully, uh, we will make it this time. Mm-hmm. So the work still needs to be done. And he's mm-hmm. a workaholic. Yes, for kind of 250 bucks a well, um, Peter,
3: what are your hopes for this
5: film? We had a uh, world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival earlier in January, and uh, the film was picked up for distribution. So the film is going to hit theaters nationwide. Congratulations! Yeah, in, in, uh, in September. And, uh, and, you know, Carlos, my buddy Benjamin, who's a consultant producer, Bavares, we're going to be going out on the Brokers' film, trying to get the word out, and, and hopefully driving audiences to, to the theater. It's, it's, films, small films like this, small independent films like this, don't have the advertising dollars that studio films do, so we depend almost solely on word of mouth campaigns.
3: So, mm-hmm. it's,
5: it's, when you write a small film like this, it, it's like a grassroots, uh, movement, mm-hmm. You know, you you have to go out and engage audiences and communities and civic leaders and drive them to the theatre. And it's by word of mouth that people come. But but if we want to see more films like this, we have to
3: show up. Now that we are going to have national distribution and with the notoriety from some from some the conferences going to the National Film Festival, it looks like the film is
2: going to have, definitely have some race and run, mm-hmm. rather than walk. It's going to be released in September, so this the theatrical release, and we want people to tweet it out there on their Twitter accounts, on their Facebooks, so or whatever social media they have, it, uh, to do Hashtag Dolores the Movie. Hashtag Dolores the Movie, and that's D-O-L-O-R-E-S. So get the word out there, so we can get audiences to see the film. Uh, And the one thing that we hope that the film will do is, uh, again, encourage people to become active in the community and and, and the political world, and I say in the civic engagement world, because uh, we know that we're in very, very difficult times right now, and we know that we want to come out stronger, as we did back in the 60s and 70s at the end of these four years, which is not – we're not going to be able to do that if people they kind of despair, they're kind of give up. You know, kind of mm-hmm. to do that. People have got to get engaged, and we hope that people to dedicate themselves uh, to organizing and to activism.
3: Okay, well, you know, Dolores and Peter, has been a pleasure to speak to the two of you. And we actually are awaiting the theatrical release of Dolores. Uh, it's written, produced, and directed by Peter Brock. And of course, Peter is here, and of course, an honor to speak to you, know, Delores, and, and the wood just keeps uh, piling up and you keep at it at age 86. Oh,
1: 87 to 85. Oh,
2: you said <laughs> <you laughs> a <seven>, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, we come after that, Carlos Santana, who had the vision. After the film, we had the idea. And with uh, uh, the producer, along with of Thank sounds. you, brother. And
3: yeah. this has been Dwee Medina for KPFA Radio.
1: está diciendo la casa la casa
0: But any we're entering one of our favorite times of the year, it's the SF Latino Film Festival is around the corner and we're going to get to talk about some films you can't see anywhere else. We have in the studio with us Nietzsche Ramirez, he's the director and founder of the festival and we're lucky to get to talk with him every year about this incredible event. Thank you so much Lucha, for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: So Nietzsche, as always, this festival has such a huge range and breadth. So, why don't we first start off by you telling us a little bit about the opening night and the film you decided to kick off the festival with
4: yes every year it's very very difficult to decide on what will we open the festival with and this year it was really pretty simple and we saw this film it's called ruta madre it's a film from mexico and the u.s it's basically a border film it's a film made in san diego and baja california bilingual, binational, bicultural, and uh, it's a road film, a comedy about reconnecting with your roots. And in this instance, it's a young man, David Cox's stars as a protagonist, and he's reconnecting with his family, and uh, we go through the road trip with him.
0: So when does that premiere? What does it premiere? Give us the it, details.
4: Right. So the festival runs from September 15th, through the 30th, and we open at the Alamo Draft House on the 15th with a Mother. continue the weekend to uh, the Opera Plaza Cinema, uh, which is near the Civic Center, and we are there for a week. We move back to the Roxy Theater for another week, and we're at cultural centers in East Bay, the La Peña Cultural Center, Eastside Arts Alliance, and then we have a, a spreading of other screenings. At uh, the De Young Museum and at the Corbett uh, Auditorium at the Civic Center Library in San Francisco. So uh, we cover a lot of ground. We have sixty films, about uh, twenty-five narrative features, and about ten documentaries. Lots going on. You have to visit our website at sflatinofilmfestival.org dot org. Uh, to get a sense of what's happening and where we do try to screen uh, a lot of these films a couple of times, although uh, some films only screen once. So to better help you plan, visit the website sflatinofilmfestival.org and see what the schedule is looking like so you can plan your festival.
0: Ramirez so this is a festival that I love because there are films that I always want to see on the big screen. And the truth is, you can't even find them sometimes even, you know, on the internet. You can't even, they're definitely not on Netflix, they're not anywhere. So tell us about some of the, tell us about some of the issues that the films touch on. Because like you said, it's a huge range.
4: It is. This year, we have probably the most films that we've ever had. We went through a lot of submissions, over 200 submissions. And so it's very difficult to narrow it down. But I think that we have a really great sampling of films that are, that are active, they're happening right now, they're still on this festival circuit, films from Mexico, Peru, Uruguay. Uh, I think that knowing what our audience likes is uh, things that have some substance. And so anything with a political end on the drama side is fun to watch, even when the stories themselves are on the heavier side. So, for example, we have a film out of Uruguay called Breadcrumbs, And it's a film about a woman that uh, had suffered during the dictatorship there, and 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 there's a parallel stories one in the present where she's gone back to revisit when she's been away for many many years living in Spain, and then the the second story is her as a young woman who was detained in prison in her youth. And so it's a wonderful film starring Cecilia Ross, who's of uh, Pedro Almodovar film fame, and uh, it's a wonderful film. It was uh, early-wise um, submission for the Oscars. And as you said, you know, there's a lot of these films that, either you see them on the festival circuit, but sometimes you just don't. But you don't see them anywhere, not even on Netflix. There's a lot of effort really is put into seeing what these films have to offer. And so in this case, it's uh, a dictatorship-related films. But, you know, we also touch on things like immigration and civil rights.
0: Lucho, I mean, we're talking about the SF Latina Film Festival, which is around the corner, it premieres on September 15th and goes on for a couple of weeks. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people wait all year for this time for people to catch these great uh, films and docs and shorts. So along with having so many films from all over America Latina, some things that we can't see anywhere else, we also have a lot of great Latina film makers that are featured. Can you tell us about that?
4: Sure thing. I could actually say that if you look at our list, uh, the vast majority of our films are from the United States. Between the short films, the middling films, and some documentaries, it, it leads on the U.S. Latino side, bilingual or in English, or some of them in Spanish. But I think it reflects uh, a community uh, where we straddle a couple of cultures or uh, have a very strong connection to a particular country among those films that we do in as u s Argentina, we have about four documentaries, including three that are local. One is called the Third Route, which is a documentary about Mexican music, specific Mexican music in fromtra. and uh, the reference to the third route has to do with finding the connection. Of music, it, the music, the the origins of it, which are uh, European, of course, indigenous, of course, but then the third route refers to Africa. So, so it really is one of those things that it takes us on a on a trip, and it's a wonderful film visually, and um, we we highly recommend the film. It's a local filmmaker, Reid it. and um, that one will be screening at at a couple of places, the Apple Plaza Cinema on our first weekend on the 16th as well as September 16th and also it will be at the Eastside Arts Alliance on the 28th uh, in Oakland. So uh, we're hoping that we're also going to have a little bit of a a meet up with uh, some of the musicians that play that style of music here in the Bay Area. So I know that every year you'll we're committed to making some
0: of the films free. So, and we're also a lot of the films are shown in cultural centers, community centers, where people come together. So, can you tell us a little bit about those offerings, when they are, and how people can find out more?
4: Sure. Visit our website at dot org to get the details on the whole schedule. Uh, we have a special section there on the website for the community screenings. Uh, at this point, the films that we have. Uh, as I just mentioned, Third Route at Eastside Arts Alliance, or Eastside Cultural Center in Oakland. We also have a screening, uh, a whole day of the uh, classic Mexican films from the Golden Age of Cinema, and that's on um, the 25th of September at uh, Civic Center Public Library. And at the De Young Museum, we're going to have a wonderful, wonderful film, film on, on uh, October 14th. It's beyond a festival date, but I wanted to make a mention because it's playing both at the Opera Plaza uh, the first weekend, the 16th and 17th of September, but there's also going to be a free screening of it uh, at uh, at the Young Museum on the 14th, and that's to coincide also with the Philadelphia tradition exhibition that they're, they're starting there. And the film is called Mara Akane's Dream. So those are our community screenings that are happening.
0: You also have a lot of films from school. Tell us about that.
4: Yes, we have a couple of award-winning films. Uh, One is called The Roof. It uh, premiered at the Miami Film Festival, and it's about three young Cubans and how they are seeing their life, and dreaming and trying to figure out how to make things happen for themselves. And uh, the storyline revolves around them starting a business on the roof of the building. And uh, it's a fantastic film. The other film is uh, one that met some controversy, and it was, and it's called uh, "Last Days in Havana." It's a fantastic film about uh, two men, and one who is um, basically in his deathbed, but at the same time enjoying the life that he has, and the other man who helps him, cares for him. We're not exactly sure what the relationship is, but uh, cares for him. And uh, this one dreams with leaving Cuba, and each stage checks his mail to see if his exit visa is in the box. And so these two films are a very good example of contemporary Cuban films, one with uh, young actors, emerging talent, and the other with more established stars that uh, have been another production out of Cuba.
0: I've been speaking to Mitchell Ramirez, he's the Founding Director of the SF Latino Film Festival. It kicks off September 15th and it is a lot of films, 62 films including a lot of docs and short films. It's really incredible. So Mitchell, a lot of people may kinda to write down the dates and times, but where can people get the most up-to-date information about
4: the festival? The most up-to-date? Visit our website at SFLatinoFilmFestival.org or you can also follow us on social media at SF Latino Film on Twitter and Instagram, or the Facebook at Latino Film Festival.
0: Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much, Mitchell, for all the work you do to bring us these great films.
4: Thank you for your support.
1: You've been listening
0: to La Rosa Chronicles, cronitas de La Vesa. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook at La Vesa Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we could be doing or would like to be involved with our collective, you can email us at lavesaconicles at ktfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.